Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Beat, part of the Triple Play Fantasy Network. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Chris Torres. I'm going to be your host today, joined by my co-host, my senior co-host, Mike Carter, oh, just back from his <laughs> from his trip to Arizona at first pitch. Mike, what's going on, man? How you doing? You know, I'm I'm good, Chris. Uh, it's good to be back. I missed you again. It's uh, really nice to be able to be back and talk a little bit of baseball. We got a couple of really great guests tonight. I'm looking forward to hearing about what they have to say. I'm feeling pretty good. It was nice to be in the sun for four or five days. Uh, Get a little heat, see see some White Sox prospects. Colson Montgomery's coming, baby, and uh, you need something shut, to hold on to, right? Oh my God! <laughs> I, every time he came up to bat, I was that's what I was saying. It's like, please give me something here. Please give me something. Uh, so yeah, but it was a lot of fun. We'll talk more about it later. Yep, yep, we will. But uh, yeah, you you mentioned our guests, and we've got two great ones today. Uh, we are going to be joined by uh, beat writer. For the Detroit Tigers from MLB.com, we have with us Jason Beck, and we will then have Russell Withers of Armchair Roto to break down, um, to give us some fantasy analysis, look at some early ADP here, so uh, we will get to him shortly. But I do have Jason here with me, so let me just introduce him again. Jason is the Detroit Tigers beat writer for MLB.com. We're super excited to have him with us. Jason, thank you so much for taking the time. How are you? Good. How are you guys? Doing well, thanks. All right. Well, we like to start out these interviews by getting to to know our guests a little bit. And, um, you know, I just want to learn a little bit about you, Jason, and your background. So if you could tell us uh, about your path to becoming a beat writer for MLB.com, and if you could share with us maybe a memory or two, uh, some favorite memories from your time on the beat. Well, uh, I started on the Tigers beat in 2002. Um, you know, I had bounced around a little bit uh, before that, worked in uh, in newspapers out of college, um, got online through uh, CBS Sportsline, AOL, uh, did some stuff there, um, did some stuff for AP, um, helped out on uh, Florida Marlins coverage when I was in Fort Lauderdale working at CBS Sportsline. Uh, but I always kind of dreamed of being a beat writer. And when MLB, you know, decided to create this network of of team sites, you know, centralized and have a beat writer for every team, it was the opportunity that was too good to pass up. And, you know, I was able to come, you know, kind of come back to Detroit. I'm not from Detroit, but, you know, I, I spent a, a good part of my childhood in Toledo, which is like basically an hour away. So it kind of feels like I, w- I was from, I, you know, I, I went to some Tigers games as a teenager. So, you know, it, it was kind of familiar territory for me. I guess favorite memories, you know, World Series in 2006 and 2012, the, you know, the 06 World Series was especially fun because, you know, it was that quick rise from, you know, when they lost 119 games in 2003 and kind of watching it build step by step. And, you know, all of a sudden they had a, uh, they had a contender. And how long have you been on the beat with them? 
Uh, since 2002. So I guess 22 years now. Wow. Okay. So yeah, you've seen a lot during your time on the beat, I'm sure. Um, who's, who's like, give me your top three tigers that you've covered during your time. Oh, well, you know, I've got to put Cabrera first. I think at this point, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, I've been lucky. I, I covered Cabrera, um, you know, Verlander, I, I think would be an extremely strong second. And then, you know, probably Max Scherzer, number three, I would think. I mean, you know, it's a pretty good group. It's, you know, I've been very fortunate to cover some, you know, incredibly talented players who've had, you know, Hall of Fame careers. And, you know, we'll see, you know, here in a few years, you know, you know, when they get in and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, how they're recognized. That's really cool. You know, Jason, the Tigers appear to really have built a solid foundation with some of their young core players. What was the vibe in the clubhouse by the end of the season here? And what are your thoughts on the team heading into 2024? Well, you know, it's funny because, like, I, I covered a lot of these kids as they were coming up through the system. You know, there's one of the things, like, when they went into rebuild mode in 2017, you know, I made a point to kind of make more visits to the minor leagues, try to, you know, not just interview these guys, but, you know, try to get to know them a little bit, kind of, you know, get the vibes as, as these guys were, were coming up. And, you know, for a lot of those guys, it doesn't go quite that far back. You know, you know, there was, there were basically two waves. There was the Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, Matt Manning, Alex Faito wave of, of pitchers. You know, Joey Wentz was in there too. You know, they came through Erie in 2019 and then started trickling into the major leagues in 2020. And then after that, there was the group with, you know, Spencer Torkelson, Riley Green, and, um, you know, Kerry Carpenter that came through Erie in 2021, got to Toledo by the end of that year. And, uh, you know, in the case of Torque, he got to the majors the next year. Uh, you know, Riley Green had to wait a little bit longer due to injuries. Kerry Carpenter still had a little bit of development to go, but you know, you kind of saw two distinct waves of, of prospects there. And I think by the end of this season, you kind of felt the clubhouse take on a lot of vibes of those two groups to where you kind of saw, you know, they became the main influencers in, in the clubhouse and they set the tone and, you know, for a really young group, it was it was a pretty good tone. You know, it, it's a group that generally gets along. Uh, you know, they're pretty accommodating. You know, they're they know each other fairly well. It's not a group that's come in from a lot of different places. It's a group that's kind of come through the ranks together. Um, you know, they all know each other. Yeah, they all kind of. You know, Noah makes each other tick. They've played behind each other at different levels. So I, I think in that sense, you, there's that, there's a, uh, feeling of togetherness that might be, uh, you know, it's kind of organic. I, I think with them that, you know, you didn't have to manufacture because it was already built in, you know, even before they, they reached Detroit. Do you think they're ready to compete this year? I think if they make the right additions that, you know, they could beat the timetable and, and make a push. I think in the AL Central, you know, anything's possible. I think we saw that, 
you know, this year where, you know, we saw kind of this division turned upside down. You know, the White Sox really struggled. The Indians were up and down. The Twins were up and down before finally pulling away. So, you know, I think the division is there for a lot of teams to where it doesn't take a lot in order to, you know, make that step towards contention. I think the key for the Tigers is, you know, they had, you know, in terms of in-division record, they had the best in-division mark of, of any team in the division. You know, they, they, they played better against AL Central opponents than any other AL Central team did. You know, and it, it wasn't even close. Um, their problem was the AL East and to a degree, the AL West. They even held their own against the, the National League in their league play. So, you know, the, the question they face, I think, going into next year is, first of all, you know, what are you going to see out of the AL, you know, the rest of the division to counter what you did against them last year? But also, you know, how do you make up that, that gap against really good teams on the coasts? Yeah, well, you know, they have to compete with the White Sox. So, uh, you know, my oh, it's all task. Here we right? go. Yeah. Here we go. Start <laughs> early tonight. There. Yeah. Um, but uh, one player the, the Tigers are going to need to kind of play up to the level um, that, you know, they would expect based on his contract is, is Javier Baez. And, you know, fantasy managers have been drafting the past couple of years and have been very disappointed with what they've gotten from Baez. I'm sure Tiger fans have as well. Um, Jason, do you have any insight into what's been behind Baez's struggles in a Tiger uniform? Well, I mean, I think part of it is, you know, he, he really isn't that much different style-wise than he was when he was a star in Chicago and then you know, had that big stretch run with the Mets. You know, he's always been a swing and miss type of player. He's always been hyper-athletic. Um, but the problem now is that, you know, I think on those other teams, he got away with that a little bit more in a supporting role. You know, he didn't have the feeling of responsibility like he had to carry the offense for stretches or be a focal point of an offense. And then when he signed here, see, you know, by nature of the contract alone, um, and by, uh, and by comparison to the other shortstops in his free agent market, he became, you know, kind of the focal point for what the Tigers were going to do. And, you know, kind of the, the poster child of their effort to jump back into contention. And it worked out horribly. Um, he felt a lot of responsibility and I think he kind of tried to do too much. But I think besides that, there's a little bit of an aging process going through there where, you know, the style that he was able to get away with in terms of chasing pitches and being able to do damage on them. I don't think it works anymore. Um, you know, he doesn't have that same bat to be able to do that. Um, I, I think there's some, hand-eye stuff potentially going on there. And I also think that, you know, when he went through these struggles and when he went through the, what the team was going through in terms of the team-wide struggles, you know, it was tough for him to focus. You know, there are concentration lapses there. And it's one thing when you're in your mid-20s and you're still seen as an emerging star and you're seen as kind of a supporting, you know, 
not supporting cast, but, you know, a, a player, a part of a core, but not necessarily the superstar. And then when you become the center of attention in a lineup, um, you know, you don't get away with that stuff nearly as often. And when you have, and when you have fewer guys around the lineup that opposing pitchers need to be afraid of, you know, you get pitched to differently. And he's had a problem responding to that. And, yeah, he I, he gets it. You know, he admitted at the end of the season that, you know, he's not playing up to his own standards, let alone everybody else's, and that he's got to make adjustments. So, you know, the, the Tigers are trying to work with him this off season. You know, they're they tried to design an off season hitting program for him. Um, they're trying to get him to, you know, be a little bit more disciplined while trying not to take away some of that dynamic impact hitting that makes him who he is. It's a tough balance to strike, but, you know, it's part of the reason why you have three hitting coaches. So, you know, we'll, we'll see how it works out here going into uh, next spring and then into next season. Yeah, he's a really intriguing player and somebody that they really need to have bounce back, it would seem. Jason, what are you hearing about Jackson Job, and when do you think he's going to debut in the big leagues? Well, I mean, Jackson had a weird year. You know, he missed mm-hmm. the first half of the season with back issues. You know, and when it happened, it was a shock to a lot of people because he came in spring training. Um, we didn't know of any issues that he came into camp with, but clearly something was off. Uh, we never saw him in a big league game in spring training, even though that's something where you know, they like to bring some of the pitchers over, you know, especially when the World Baseball Classic was going on. He didn't get that opportunity. And then all of a sudden there was this note that, oh, he, he's got back issues. And, you know, you're not going to see him again, you know, for at least a few months. And when you couple that with what, you know, what were some growing pains the year before, you know, there were some questions like, okay, is this guy ever going to pan out or, are the Tigers forever going to regret passing on Marcelo Mayer to draft Jackson Joel? And then he came back in midseason, got to West Michigan, which is their high A affiliate, and then just really put on a show. Um, mm-hmm. It was dynamic stuff. He, he not only was back to where he was throwing wise at the end of the previous season, he was better. Because he had worked on different pitches. You know, he was throwing a dynamic cutter. His change of speeds was better. Uh, his overall command was better. He went into um, games with an attack plan, and he was pounding the strike zone. Um, of anybody in the system, I think he took the dominating the strike zone motto that the Tigers have adopted and really took it to heart, maybe more than any pitcher in the system. I um, mean, you saw, you know, he he went, I, I believe he went his final 30 innings of the uh, of the regular season between West Michigan and AA Erie without walking a batter. Um, I think he finished, you know, the half season with more home runs allowed than walks allowed. I think, you know, the, the strikeout to walk ratio was ridiculous. Um, and then he took that and brought it into the Arizona Fall League. So, you know, put all that together, and I think it really changed the consciousness on the potential timetable for him. I think now to where 
you know, maybe before this, you were hoping, okay, maybe he can get there by the end of 2024, maybe more likely 2025. I think 2024 at some point, maybe during the summer, is looking more realistic. Um, if he can carry forward, you know, what he's done here and, and build off of that and show further progress as, as he begins next season at double A. And you know, faces an, an elevated level of hitting. Tigers have some young, good pitching. Uh, you know, currently in in the big leagues, but also on the way. And uh, yeah, there's there's definitely um, you know, it seems like the organizational approach, whatever they're doing, is working. Uh, they're they're really developing some young pitchers here. I want to ask you about another young player. This time, an outfielder. Uh, you recently wrote up uh, an article about Justice. Big B, um, big Bigs B, Big B, Big B, yep, Big um, B, yeah, <laughs> Big B, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I never heard of him before this, but uh, I read your article and was intrigued by that. You talked about him and how he's kind of a, like a like a Kerry Carpenter prototype, like in terms of just his skill set, uh, with you know really good contact skills as well as good power, but also kind of his path to the big or, or through the minors, kind of an under the radar guy. Um, so if you could tell us a little bit about uh, Justice Bigby and what we can expect from him this season. Yeah, um, you know, both he and Carpenter were 19th round draft picks and both were kind of quietly going through the system before having a breakout at, at double-A year. Um, I, I think Bigby's you know, progress began a little bit sooner because he had a really good uh, opening couple months at West Michigan before getting promoted. And then, if anything, he got better when he got to Uri, and that earned him a promotion to Toledo before the end of the season. And he really caught the eyes of some front office people in the, in the Tigers organization to where, you know, they wanted to test him. So they sent him to the fall league, and he's been able to largely carry that forward against an elevated level of competition. Um, it's a different style of hitting from what Carpenter was doing on his way up the minors. Um, you know, hitting style is still big, but it's a different style. Um, it's a lot more opposite field contact with Justice. Um, he does a lot of damage as a right-handed hitter going to right field, both in terms of power and in terms of contact. Um, there's a lot of overall hitting there. Uh, but you, we've seen a little bit more in the fall league to where if you're not, if you don't pitch him honestly, if you try to challenge him with velocity, you know, maybe over the inside part of the plate or right over the plate, he could do damage to the pull side with it. You know, I think the Tigers would like to see a little bit more of that as he goes on. But, you know, you see a very disciplined approach from him, which, again, it is what the Tigers are preaching from their hitters more so than, than launch angle. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, he's got a chance to, you know, make it to the major leagues uh, at some point next year. I don't know, um, you know, when it'll be. I don't know his ultimate role. Um, the Tigers outfield is looking very crowded right now, especially with Mark Canna, you know, just acquired. But as we've seen the last couple of years, there's always some sort of need that arises in terms of outfielders, just with injuries and some guys struggle and everything. So if he can carry it forward in AAA, He's going to get a shot, and from there, it's up to him how he does it. I, I think what, what we saw from Kerry Carpenter 
that that's made him a major indicator is that he believed in his approach once he got to the big leagues, but he didn't rest on his laurels there. He built off of that. He he had specific points he wanted to progress on, and he he made himself a more well-rounded hitter after he arrived, which you don't see often. And I think Justice, just my impressions of him is he's a smart enough hitter to make those adjustments too. Uh, it, it's mainly a matter of when and if he can get the opportunity here. We're here with Jason Beck, beat reporter for the Detroit Tigers. And if you're not following him on Twitter or X, whatever you call it these days, you should really start doing that. Because as we went to record and we were talking beforehand, Jason really does a great job of humanizing the players and making us understand them more from a human standpoint and the things that they have going on in their lives. And that um, the things that we ask of players so that we think of players as being superhuman, they're just uh, regular people like we are all with great talents, obviously. So uh, go and follow Jason on Twitter if you're not doing that. Jason, we have one more segment with you that we'd like to do real quick. If you got a couple minutes, we call sure. it our over and under and we ask you a question about a player and ask you if you would take the over or the under on a certain statistical category. The first one, uh, Torres uh, has a secret, secret crush on this guy, is Tarek Skubal. Over, it's under. No secret, baby. <laughs> it's not a secret anymore. <laughs> oh, no, it's uh, out there. It's, it's going to be either him or Michael King for you, I think, this year. But, yep. <laughs> um, over, under 140 innings for him this coming year. Granted, knowing that he's pitched his high water mark in the major leagues has been 149. Well, I mean, I, you know, the, the question with Tarek is always going to be health. You know, if he's healthy, he should be the type of starter who delivers easily 150 innings plus, you know, probably closer to like 180, maybe a little bit beyond. You know, he's shown the ability to deliver deep starts. I think whereas the first year or two in his career, he could be a little mercurial and could end up running up a high pitch count. Uh, you know, without working deep in the games, he really showed the ability to address that once he returned from flexor tendon surgery this summer. Showed a little bit more wide variety of pitches, but also showed the willingness and aggressiveness to, to get quick outs in an, in an effort to work deeper in the games. So as long as, you know, there, there's always the risk with Tarrant where, you know, when you see a guy who's gone through Tommy John in 2017 and went through the flexor tendon surgery, you know, uh, late in 2022, you know, that's always got to be in the back of your mind. But as long as, you know, he's healthy, he's a guy, he's, and especially, you know, with Eduardo Rodriguez gone, he's a workhorse in this rotation right now until and unless they sign somebody to take him out of that top role. And I don't know if that, that guy's out there right now. So you're taking the over? I, I think that you can count on him for 150 to 180 innings. All right. Oh, no. Torres is going to become a monster I need now. a break. I need to. You've done it now, You've done yeah. it now Jason. <laughs> um, next guy, uh, Alex Lang, over or under 23 and a half saves. Uh, it's always tough projecting what closer – stats are going to be in an AJ Hinch bullpen because he hates to label guys as closers. And even when he has a quote unquote closer, he likes to use them um, sometimes 
in an unorthodox fashion to where like if the dangerous part of the lineup is coming up in the eighth, you know, he's not afraid to use his closer in the eighth instead of the ninth. Um, plus, you know, we saw struggles from Alex, you know, for a large part of the year. This was not the same guy that we saw dominating hitters uh, down the stretch in 2022. Uh, he's got some work to do in terms of throwing strikes, I think in terms of pounding the strike zone, and to get guys off of his breaking ball. Um, I think he's got to be able to, you know, maybe not develop a third pitch, but at least get the fastball command at a point where, you know, hitters approach him honestly. Um, until and unless that happens, you know, I don't know what to expect from Alex. And, you know, until you see that, it's hard to know if, you know, if he's going to be the closer or if they give Jason Foley a shot. Or if, you know, depending on what's out there in the market or what other trades the Tigers do, if maybe somebody else comes in and gets shot that role. Yeah, I think it, I think it's quite likely that they might find somebody else given his consistent struggles and his uh, incredibly high walk rate. If he can control that, he could really be a dynamic guy there. You bring up a great point about A.J. Hinch and the way he manages both then. Okay, last one. Last one, I promise. Spencer Torkelson, over under 30 home runs. He hit 31, I think, this past season. Do you think he goes over that or under that again this year? Well, he's already shown he can be a 30-homer hitter. And, you know, he has proven himself to be incredibly durable. Um, Yeah, if anything, he should have a greater chance of durability given the way the roster is constructed now because, you know, he's not going to be in a position where he necessarily has to play first base quite as often as he did this year because the DH slot's going to be open now for more often. Uh, and they have Mark Hanna who has an ability to play first base. Um, I don't think they want him to be a part-time first baseman. I, I think, you know, they see him as the, the present in future there, but I think, they look at the DH spot as a way to get Torque off of his feet and kind of preserve that energy a little bit more uh, for the stretch run. Um, I think Torque knows the type of hitter he is. I think he's tap- he's just starting to tap into the power that he has. We've seen that power largely to the pull side. I don't know if we've seen it quite develop to the opposite field yet, but we've seen glimpses of it. I think he has a chance to threaten 40 home runs. Um, you know, he might not get there right away, but, you know, with a little bit more support around him and, you know, a little bit more balanced lineup, a little bit more reason to throw him strikes and attack him over the plate and a little bit more confidence in what he's seeing in himself in terms of his strike zone, you know, I, I think Torque could easily get to 35 home runs next year. Awesome. Well, Jason, uh, you've been very generous with your time. We thank you so much for, for joining us. This was great. Uh, if you could just take a moment to let our listeners know where they can find your work and where they could find you on social media. Yeah, so, um, you know, the Tiger site is tigers.com, uh, or you can go to mlb.com for the national site. Uh, I am at Beck Jason on Twitter or X or whatever you call it. 
Um, you know, I have the same uh, handle on threads, and I'm on Dark Sky at Jason Beck. All one word. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jason. Uh, hope to have you back on some point during the season. Sounds awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. It's been All great right. talking about it. Thanks, care. Jason. Take care, guys. Thanks All again. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that was Jason Beck of MLB.com. That was great. He was uh, really informative, so we appreciate Jason coming on with us. Uh, but we're going to go into our next segment. Uh, right now, we, we got a little time before our next guest joins us. So I uh, just want to check in with you, Mike, about you just came back from First Pitch Arizona, and I saw all the pictures and, you know, had all the FOMO. Um, but uh, yeah, if you could tell us a little bit about how it was, um, some takeaways, some things you learned. I love, first of all, before I even start that, I love how we had a Detroit Tigers beat writer on and you figured out like three ways to shortchange the White Sox. So thank well, you, you know, for that. You thank you for Anytime that. You have an AL Central team. I'm going to work them in there. Definitely. I know. And I, I, I appreciate it. I mean, I know you're thinking of me. I know that you're, you're jealous, especially after Cash's comments this week uh, on the Yankees and how good he thinks they are. No, um, you know, I, this was my third time going to first pitch. And it is an experience. It's um, it's all about baseball all weekend. Uh, it's it's just an incredible thing to be able to see people that I guess I now call my peers, um, people that I have held up on a pedestal for years as a reader, as a fantasy baseball player, to actually rub elbows with those people, to hang out, to talk with them. You realize that it, this community, it is a community. Fantasy baseball is a community. And it is a very accepting and welcoming and warm community. And it, it's taken me some time to be able to realize that, but it, it encompasses everyone. Everyone is welcome there. There are people from all different walks of life, from all over the country, from Canada, Canada even, that come to this thing down in Arizona to spend those three or four days, five days together and, and go from there. One of the things that was really special for me about this time was um, I was asked to present with Rick Graham, who's a genius on bullpens and we were talking about holds and where to find holds. That's my work that I do and at fan tracks and whatnot. And so I got to go to present a session on Thursday. And when you see people that are well known in our community coming to your session, there's a little bit of a of a nerve factor there. And then you just realize, like Jason just said, we're all just talking about baseball, you know? And so uh, I got to go to four different games. I got to go to the All-Star game on Sunday night. Uh it was fantastic. Went to the home run derby. Um Probably the highlight for me, and I, and you know, you'll laugh at me. Well, no, you won't laugh at me. You understand where I'm coming from. But and I got to meet Steve Gardner in person. He's one of my heroes, and all the baseball HQ guys that are there. You know, like I mean, they're legends. You know, they don't act like that, but they're legends. And Ron Chandler's there, and Doug Dennis is there, and Andy Andres is there, and you know, Ray and Brent, and you know, Jack Thompson is usually there, but he wasn't this year. You know, all these guys that I've been reading in magazines and books for 25, 30 years. It's a, it's a, it's like a miracle thing to be there. And then you add in all these young people that are coming in that do all this incredible work. You know, you see Chris Clegg and Eric Cross and these guys running around back and forth with videos and doing interviews and how hard they're working and how much they know. 
And, and it, there's so many people that are like that. You know, it's, it's just a remarkable thing. Um, unfortunately, there was a picture of me taking uh, double fisting beers in the uh, back of the podcast. You knew I was going to ask about that. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm just gonna, I'm going to try to get out in front of it. All right. Um, I was originally going to tell everybody that um, I was holding Kevin Hastings beer, but that's not true. Kevin had his own beer, and I had two. <laughs> um, so I was Fair living enough. it up a little bit late night. Uh, I had to do that because I had to figure out a way to stay awake. It, it's you know three o'clock in the morning my time, and these guys are still up partying and playing poker and having a good time but chris you have to you have to make it um i will petition ingrid for you start stashing away a hundred dollars here a hundred dollars there and make it happen i promise i won't room with you because you're a young guy and you want to go out and do your thing and you know i'm an old guy who needs to be in bed by nine o'clock but you would love it and i and i'll say say this to anybody who's listening that it has is ever thinking about going out or whatnot do it if you do it one time, I guarantee you, you will go back. And I guarantee you that every year it will be more fun because you will know more and more people. There will be more and more people there that are, are excited to see you. It's just a, a wonderful experience. I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, man, that, that sounds awesome. I mean, just to be around like-minded people who love this game, you know, as much as we do. And uh, to meet, like you said, some people that you've been following for years, um, you know, like you said, legends of this industry. Uh, it sounds so cool. And just, you know, the fact that the Arizona Fall League is going on at the same time and you get to see these young players uh, just sounds like an awesome experience. I, I told you, I'm going to go next year. My son will be four. And right now he is in, you know, he's three years old and he's in his toddler slash terrorist phase. <laughs> so, you know, part of me, I I really considered it uh, going this year, but I just, you know, my wife just started job and mm -hmm. you know just where my son is at i'm like man i just don't feel like totally right going but uh i think by next year i think things will be a, a little bit clearer for me to uh to head out there because yeah it, it, it sounds awesome yeah you would um, love it um yeah I, i'm just at a different life point right i'm i'm older than you by a lot and i've got 16 year old and a 13 year old that I, I don't even know if they know what I'm going when I'm gone, quite honestly. Um, but uh, it, it's just it's just a great experience. I mean, can you imagine like you're you're in November in Arizona in November watching baseball with like minded people, looking at prospects, hoping and praying for your team to have some prospects there that make it and are good. It's just a really it's just a really cool experience. You know, there's just it was 200 people thereabouts that are just walking mm -hmm. around and and literally from the morning, the minute you wake up until the minute you go to bed, you're talking about baseball, you know, it's just a really great experience. Yeah. And this is just such an awesome, friendly community. Um, you know, so definitely to meet everybody in person, it's nice to have this online community, but I'm sure it's, you know, so much better to have that, uh, that in person, you know, that yeah. camaraderie. It's, it, re it, it really is. And I'll tell you the thing that's interesting about it is that like, I'm I'm 50, right? We talk about this all the time about how old I am. And I remember a time before there was the internet or before there was statistics at our fingertips on a keyboard and being able to do all that stuff. And so because I'm a little bit older, I, I think I look back on it a little bit differently than a lot of other people do. But the thing is, is that the internet has become this thing where we make friends. You and I would never have met if it wasn't for the internet, right? Yeah. I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah. And so we're friends now and talk all the time offline and send each other stupid text messages and whatnot about what's going on because we're, we're truly friends. And 
that never would have happened if it wasn't for the internet. So, so we have that to thank for it, but you meet these people in person and you recognize that these are friendships that you will have forever. I, there are people that I've met at these things that I know that I'll just pick. I mean, here's a great example. I, I knew Lauren Orbach was going, I saw her, we had a beer and literally we were like in the same conversation we were last year at the same time, like shooting, the shooting the ball, being sarcastic, laughing, talking about life, talking about ball, right? Like it's, it's that's somebody that will be my friend forever. I, I strongly feel that way. You know, like it's just a cool thing. Like, and, and, and I never thought the internet that 10 years ago, if somebody would have told me the internet could do that, I would have said you were on drugs. Mm-hmm. And maybe you are on drugs. I don't know, but like, Sometimes. I wouldn't, I, right. I mean, well, <laughs> It pays. It pays to be on drugs sometimes. <laughs> Let's be honest. When you have a three-year-old. It does. It absolutely yes. does. Yes. And I and I I can hook you up in some ways. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but like, long story short, it's just a great experience. And I really do believe you would be like me in that if you went one time, there would be nothing that would stop you from going again. There's a lot of people that come out from New York, New Jersey area yeah. uh, to be out there. So yeah, you can make it work. You get a good airline flight and uh, find a roommate to split it with. You'd be in good shape. And I'll room with you, bro. Like, I know you say you're old, but I'll be honest. You probably, like, everybody's always said I'm an old soul. I'm probably, my soul is probably older than you are, you know, what, you're 50, right? You just, yeah. you, you turn the big five oh. So, yeah, I, I'm definitely at heart like a 55-year-old. My wife makes fun of that. me because I make friends, you know, like, I have my, my group of friends, but, like, I find it easier to make friends, like, if I go out with, like, a 60, 65 year old guy. Like, I, I don't right. know what it is, but it's just like, I feel like I, I know was, what it is. <laughs> I was born in the wrong era. You know, I like, know. I, I know what it is. I know what it is. It's because you are so cranky that yes. the old people recognize this Absolutely. is an old soul. This is a 37 year old man who's actually 75 internally. <laughs> cranky. Complaining. You, you are so spot on. Like, I know. I know. Yeah. Yeah, my yeah. friend who's Jewish calls me like an old Jewish woman, you know, yeah. just like just yeah. cranky, complaining, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you, you nailed it, dude. So, yeah, I'll but I'll room with you. Um, Definitely. I think we'd we'd have a good time, man. But uh, all right, cool. So thanks for sharing uh, about your time out there. Um, Tell me a little bit about where you're at right now, especially now that you got like this knowledge over at first pitch. Where are you at with your off-season process? Have you, to what extent have you dug into stuff from last year and started to prep for next year? I took a deep breath for about a week after everything was done and uh, started to kind of look back on my rosters and and what I had done, where I had success, and where I had failed. Um, I'm really still very much bent on working, reworking my fab process uh, this year. I think it worked to a large extent for me last year, but there were there were several misses and kind of looking back on those things that I looked at. So I'm not necessarily super looking forward yet. I've still been kind of reflective on where I've been. I I, I have been thinking a lot of, and this is not going to be helpful to anyone who's <laughs> listening, but I have been thinking a lot about bullpens, obviously, getting ready to present out there. Um, and thinking about some of these free agents and some of these d- deeper issues that bullpens have, um, and kind of thinking about that. And, and so I will really probably, I would say this weekend will probably be the first foray into, okay, let's start looking at the player pool. Let's start looking at some of this ADP. Um, uh, I went to, uh, Ryan Bloomfield's and, uh, Bubba's, uh, podcast on Saturday night, I think it was, and they had some early ADP stuff going on and I find it fascinating you know like uh Tim Anderson the former looks like to be former White Sox now 
has an ADP less than 300. You know, that that's going to change. Obviously there's only been a few drafts so far, but I, I find that stuff fascinating. I don't, I don't know how you feel about ADP. I don't pay that much attention to it. I, I mean, I, Why I you make that face. Well, I just, I don't know. Like, I, I think that's an unpopular thing to say. I think a lot of people really think ADP is where it's at and that you have to take a player at, you know, oh, is it a value? Is it this or that or whatever? I mean, like, I don't know. I don't really think about it that way. I think about it more from the point of view of roster construction and what I'm going for in the end game of that and not worried about ADP. You know, like, if you like Tarek Skubal in the in the fourth round, you should take him in the fourth round. Like, I don't. I guess I just don't really care what ADP says about that. Like, I know you're going to take him before that. I, let's just be, let's just be clear. Hey, he's my one-on-one baby. I think, I think you're going to take, I think you're going to do one-on-one. Yeah. Michael King, one-on-two. That's what I'm saying. I think what yeah. you're going to do, I think you're, gonna, think you're going to do bat flip crazy Toby's technique. You're going to do double aces in the first round, Scooble and Michael King. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then watch, and then watch you win main event. Then, then you're paying for first pitch Arizona for me too. That's right, baby. All right. All right. That's a deal. That is a deal. If I win the main event this year, I will pay for your trip to Arizona. Oh, All right? I, I make more money than God. I'm doing okay, man. I'm yeah. just joking with you. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, it, listen, I think if you're, if you're doing one draft, you know, you, and you're just like more of a casual player, yeah, get your guy. Who cares about ADP? So I, I understand that. Um, I do look at it quite a bit. I, I'm still tentative about really buying in too much to like what the ADP is right now. It's it's going to change, right? Like you said, there's only been a couple of drafts, and um, you know I don't think we could take too much stock into what the ADP is now. Though there is some signal, right? Because mm-hmm. I think now from this point forward, people are going to start drafting off of the ADP that's already been set. So, um, yeah, so. I, it's not the be all end all for me. Just like everything, everything is a data point, right? Mm-hmm. I don't, I try to just look at it for what it is. I'm not like, oh, you have to go by ADP. I'm not, a, oh, you have to go by the projection. I have my own like blend in my own head of like all of these different data points and I'm taking them all into account and trying to make the best decision with each pick. So, um, yeah, again, not, not the be all end all for me, but I definitely, do use it so when will you um when will you start drafting chris yeah i've had the itch man like there's been a couple times where i've gone into the nfbc lobby and i'm just like kind of peeking around seeing what you know seeing if there's any drafts like about to you know at like 14 or 15 and you know maybe i'll jump in um i haven't quite pulled the trigger yet usually i start drafting like beginning of january um because by then we've had a few projection systems come out already uh and the forecaster which is you know i i really i lean on that a lot um it it really kind of like is it's my foundation for my research so i kind of wait for the forecaster and projection systems to give me that foundation and then i feel confident um going into a draft so you know, this would be way earlier if I jumped in now than I've ever drafted before. And I just feel like I don't have enough of a grasp of, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on. Part of me is like, well, I don't want to let too much time go by because then I'll kind of forget some of the stuff from last year. But I think my process has worked to this point. I've, you know, been pretty successful just doing it the way I have the past couple of years. So 
I'm thinking I'm going to try to hold out till early January. And if I get the urge, uh, will you be my sponsor to kind of keep me on track? Because I feel like I'm going to need like uh, someone to keep me keep me in check here. I've never really done a super early draft. I, I feel really uncomfortable with them. I, I, I don't, I guess I just feel like I don't know enough at that point to really to do anything. And maybe, maybe I should review that strategy a little bit because maybe doing them earlier would be a helpful learning experience for me and like doing one now and then, you know, maybe doing like one a month and, and kind of seeing how it changes the process and maybe keeping some notes on it. I don't know. Something yeah. to think about. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anything else, Mike? Before we uh, we'll bring Russell in here in a few minutes. But um, any recent news? Anything that uh, is on your mind? I wanted to ask you about your take on what Brian Cashman said at the meetings the other day. Um, you had uh, in our text message, I would say that you had a f- fairly strong response to what uh, Brian said about the uh, the Yankees and and where he feels they are. After you sent that to me, I will I will reveal this. I did take a look at what their projected lineup is right now with them doing oh, nothing, God. and it's yeah. it, it might be worse than the White Sox. <laughs> um, yeah, I hate to it, tell it, you that. I don't yeah. think it's going to stay that way. I mean, I think that I think that he's being boisterous because they're going to do something cr- crazy big. Like, I mean, at this I think point, they're going to get, get, they're gonna get they, Soto. They have to get Soto, yeah. right? That's the only way. The fan base is going to be happy with this offseason if they bring mm-hmm. in a big star. If they go, heaven forbid, they go and get like Kevin Kiermeyer and some like, you know, uh, SP three or four and say, well, you know, we've, we're just counting on the guys who were injured last year to carry us this year. And we feel we have no, 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 no. Like nobody wants to hear that. Um, so yeah, you got to go. If, if you're Brian Cashman, you got to go out. And get a big star, and, and really, it's, it's Soto or, or Otani, right? Um, that that's the only way to salvage this thing. And uh, you know, but that that press conference yesterday was was wild. Did you see it? Uh, I saw clips of it. I didn't see the whole thing because I was also staggered by Chris Getz saying, "I don't like this team about the White Sox." So I had I had my own team issues to okay. think about. But yeah, yeah, it it came across. I thought it came across really badly. Oh and my Cashman's god! Yeah, part. yeah. I, I literally like, like I, I couldn't I couldn't turn it off. It was like it was like a train wreck, you know. It just like you could not look away. Um, I mean he he proved himself to be less competent and even more arrogant than I originally thought, which is hard to believe. Uh, and you know what? What's crazy about it is the guy had two months, right? Almost two months. Right. The Yankees have really, you know, been out of contention and he's had all this criticism. He had two months to prepare something and give us some kind of coherent and logical defense of himself and in the moves that he's made in the organization at large. You know, that the thing yesterday wasn't like some impromptu off the cuff meeting with a reporter like he that was planned, you know, and, and it was just he. It was an unhinged, jumbled mess. Um, you know, and one thing that stood out about it, I mean, I, I, I could go on forever about that press conference, but I found it interesting how he took offense to uh, criticism that he's received around the Joey Gallo and the Sonny Gray trades. For whatever reason, 
I mean, he's had a lot of criticism, but for whatever reason, he chose to kind of punch back as far as that. What I found comical is that his defense. Now, the Joey Gallo trade, I'll be honest, at the time, I was fine with it. I, I didn't mm-hmm. think it was a terrible move. But, you know, I found it comical that he thought his big defense of that trade was the fact that two playoff, this is what he said, two playoff teams were interested in Gallo after he left the Yankees. Obviously, the mm-hmm. Yankees traded him to the Dodgers and they made the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And then the Twins signed him as a free agent in the offseason. Is he serious with that? Is he serious that he is de- uh, defending himself mm-hmm. because there were other major league teams that were interested in Joey Gallo who just happened to make the postseason? First of all, Joey Gallo had no part in the Dodgers or the Twins making the postseason. Right. Actually, that's true. Joey Gallo didn't even, he was so bad last year that he didn't even make the postseason roster. That's correct. So, so what are how is that how are you dunking on fans by using that as your defense? Again, it's not about Joey Gallo. It's just it just shows how dumb he is to mm-hmm. think that is really a good point that he's making because that that's totally irrelevant that two playoff teams were interested in him. What did you expect him to like go to Korea <laughs> after leaving the Yankees? Like he was going to be in the main league. Yeah. And those yeah. teams just happen to make the playoffs. So yeah, that's so ridiculous. And well, then he talks about Sonny Gray saying, oh, well, look at Sonny Gray. He was a Cy Young contender this year. Well, wait a second. Doesn't he realize that by doing that, he's actually indicting himself yes. in the organization? You have a pitcher in Sonny Gray who's been successful everywhere except with the Yankees. Sonny Gray came out and said the Yankees changed his pitch mix and they had him throwing more sliders, even though he wasn't comfortable with it. But Cashman thinks that somehow it vindicated him because Sonny Gray had a Cy Young caliber season in 2023 with mm-hmm. another team. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Is that unreal or what? Yeah, it is. It is. And I. From his standpoint, you know, I'm a, I'm more objective. I'm not a Yankees fan, right? I'm a I'm a Sox fan. We all know that it's a, a whole other shit show of problems. But Cashman, it was really uncharacteristic of him to take that bait. I thought, you know, I, I I've never seen him be that animated and that angry. Uh, in his his press conferences, he's usually pretty um, devoid. I would say of feeling almost, and just talks about facts and different things. And I've always respected him for that because he's in the toughest market probably in the entire world in terms of people watching teams and being fans. I mean, I, I think the Yankees have a really knowledgeable fan base, obviously, but they also have a very abrasive fan base at times too. They question every move that gets made because they're really passionate about it. Yeah. If I, if I had won 27 world series, I'd probably be pretty excited about life too. But um, I think that it was really uncharacteristic of him. And I think, um, it's probably a precursor to some bigger moves. The, the last few things that he's done have not worked out. You know, um, obviously seeing Jordan Montgomery tear it up in the playoffs doesn't really bode well for his judgment of talent. And when you find out that these guys leave and they just tweak a pitch mix and do something a little bit different and then they hit, it's like, okay, well, if they trade Clark Schmidt, could Clark Schmidt be the next, you know, Sonny Gray or, or the next Jordan Montgomery to hit it big somewhere else? And that's an indictment on their system. I mean, they, they seem to need to be able to do some overhauling of that. And Cashman doesn't really seem to like change to his credit. He's loyal, but 
you know, they might need to look at doing something a little bit differently. They're not really, they're not, I don't want to say they're not developing talent because they have some guys that are coming that are talented, but those guys that they've been waiting on for a while haven't really hit their stride. You know, Floreal and, you know, guys like that have just kind of been languishing. You know, they've not taken those big next steps. That's why I think what he's doing is, is setting the, they're the Yankees. The Yankees have to compete every year. They can't have Billy McKinney. They can't have these guys running these guys out there again. They got to get Soto. They got to do what it takes to get him. If they have the prospect capital, I don't think it might might not necessarily cost as much prospect capital if they're willing to eat that contract since San Diego's borrowing money to make payroll right now. Um, I'm wondering if they might be able to get him for a little bit less. He'd look really good in the outfield in the Yankee Stadium. Oh, and, I mean, that, and they that, really, yeah. They they should they should get him and sign him and they should get the Japanese pitcher Yamamoto and they should sign him too and right. call That's it a day. Yep. Let somebody else take the risk on Otani. The range yeah. of the range of stuff on Otani is going to be crazy, Chris. Have you thought about this at all? I was thinking about it on the plane as I was coming home the other day. I could yeah, easily it's see be so interesting how that I could easily see him getting out. like a three hundred million dollar contract just as a hitter from somebody, and I could see him getting like seven hundred million dollars. If somebody's crazy and thinks that, you know, he's going to come back after the second Tommy John and, and pitch the way that he's done, you know, like, I mean, if Steve Cohen decides that he wants him, he'll probably get him. I, I think it's more likely that he stays on the West Coast. I mean, I could see everybody thinks the Dodgers, which makes me wonder if that could really happen. But, you know, the Giants got money to play with um, and, and are a good draw. The Mariners could make a huge splash and get somebody like that. The West Coast type of stuff. A lot of people think the Cubs are involved. I, I you know, I, the Cubs getting counsel like they just did is kind of crazy, right? I mean, I had a lot of friends reach out to me right away and say, hey, what's your take on them getting this manager? I said, well, they got probably one of the five best managers in the game. They paid a lot of money for him. And they said, oh, you know what they'll do? They'll just do the typical Cubs thing. They'll they'll spend money on the manager, but then not get any players. I go, I don't think that's what's happening here, guys. If you're, spend, if you're paying a manager $8 million a year, they're going to be players in the market. So, like, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they re-signed Bellinger. It wouldn't surprise me at all if they went after somebody like Pete Alonso and made a big splash. I don't see Otani coming to Chicago. Like I, I, you know, I could be wrong about that, but like I think he's going to want to stay west. Yeah, it's going to be super interesting to see how that all plays out. But uh, we will continue that discussion another time. We've got special guests here with us. We've got Russell Withers, uh, who is the creator of the Armchair Roto. Uh, com website. Uh, he is a avid NFBC player, a really successful one. He also was kind of my quasi-therapist when dealing with Aaron Nola struggles at some point this season. Uh, he could relate to them, and I, I felt comfort in sending him DMs when things weren't looking so hot. So, uh, Russell, really happy to have you with us. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mike. How are you guys doing? Good. Hi. Yeah. Great great to have you on, man. We're long-time admirer of your work. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, man. So uh, let's get right into it. We're going to talk a little bit about your work and some of the things that you've been posting on your website. Um, but uh, before we do that, we just sat down for an interview with uh, Jason Beck, who's the beat writer for the Tigers over at MLB.com. And, and we talked about some of their players and, and really some of their exciting younger players. Um, I, I think they're going to be pretty good this year. Um, but uh, just pulling up their ADP here. Uh, tell me, Russell, is there 
any tiger that you are especially interested in at their ADP this season? Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with you that they're they're going to be pretty good, but they are going to be fun to watch. And uh, I think uh, I'm a big Kerry Carpenter fan. Um, his ADP right now is just under 200, and I have him ranked about 150. Uh, so that's a pretty good three-round discount you're getting there. Uh, so, so he's a player I like a lot. And on the pitching side, you know, we're doing a lot of draft champions. It's DC season right now. Uh, so we'll go kind of deep. Um, I like Alex Fido at, uh, ADP 670. Um, and I like him, you know, a few hundred picks earlier than that. So you just wait as long as you can play that chicken game and, uh, take him as close to that ADP as you can. Can I pause hey, you there? Or what do you see? Can in I, Alex can I, I want to say something, Chris, before you ask him that question. Notice yeah. that he didn't say anything about Tarek Skubal. <laughs> Broke my heart, man. <laughs> you know, I, love Tarek I think the Tigers are going to be good because I'm thinking Tarek Skubal is winning this guy young this year. So, you know. <laughs> uh, that wouldn't surprise me at all if that happened. I don't think that's crazy at all. Um, Thank you. You know, yeah. you know uh, just like, like other people, I'm just a little concerned about. Uh, whether he could last the whole season, the health. Um, he hasn't shown us that he can do that yet. Uh, so until he does, I don't, uh, you know, I'm not gonna, gonna bank on him logging heavy innings. I'll, I'll pay for about 125, uh, maybe one, maybe 140. But until he actually does it and shows us he can do it, um, you know, I'm just not really willing to, to, to pay the price on him. I'm, a, I'm just a little more risk averse than the average drafter, I think. Right. Uh, Tariq Skubal right now, ADP, uh, looks like 18 drafts in. Wow, more than I thought. Um, okay, so his ADP is 63 right now. Um, and, uh, Russell, we actually just did ask Jason Beck what we, what he thinks, um, is going to be, uh, innings count for Tariq Skubal. And he said 150 to 180. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, aggressive. I, think I would say, aggressive, I would yeah. s- I would say an innings cap is a little bit different from an innings expectation. Well, but, okay, uh, I probably you know, phrased that the wrong way. It, that that's what he said. We asked him. We asked him to give us an over under, and I gave him 140 innings, and then he responded. Uh, by the end of it, he said 150 to 180 was was kind of his expectation. So that, that would um, be awesome. I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if he does that, um, he's going to be. I think he will out earn that draft cost. I mean, I am a yeah. little bit tentative like you said there's obviously the health um there's also you know we are basing it off of half a season when that schedule was really nice uh mm-hmm. you know he faced some bottom tier teams uh, i remember because i had him in several spots and i was every time i looked it was like damn this is a good matchup uh so i don't know if you know if there's some stronger competition if he's gonna quite show those same skills but you know, obviously really encouraged with what he put up last year. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm in love. Mm-hmm. I am for in sure. love. But if he gets, if he gets those things, he's you, in that conversation for sure. For, yeah. yeah. It, that you is you mentioned sure. Alex Fido, and he's going but he's going super late, mm-hmm. like you said, around yeah. pick 700. What do you see in Alex Fido that's got you interested in him? Well, I mean, you said it, pick 700. So we're not really talking anything too special here. Uh, but, but that late in the draft uh, – you know, Steamer projections came out a few days ago. Uh, Steamer kind of likes him. They, 
The system projects a 4.02 ERA and a 1.23 WHIP, uh, 56 innings. Um, I'm personally projecting him for about 100 to 115 innings. So at pick 700, I'll take those ratios, um, strong strikeout rate, a strikeout per inning. And um, even if he only gets the 56 projected, um, that costs, uh, you know, it's a pretty easy easy profit to bank. But mm-hmm. if he gets those extra innings on projecting, he, he sticks around for a while, pitches 100, 110, 120 innings, um, then you're banking some real profit there. You know, we're brilliant. talking we're talking we're talking back in streaming type streaming type SP. It's nothing too special, but but pretty valuable. Right, in pick yeah. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. Russell, one of the things that I really was dying to ask you here is, you know, we're November eighth here today. What does your off season process look like that you would be willing to share with the people who are listening? And are you changing <laughs> anything about your process this off season? I, I know we always kind of tweak what we're doing. Those of us to play seriously, but What's your process look like? Oh man, my offseason process is is it's pretty crazy. My my wife is standing here. We've we've had a lot of evenings with me sitting on the couch looking at spreadsheets and her kind of asking me, you know, what the hell are you doing over there? Didn't the season just end? <laughs> um, so about halfway through September, I start building a, a spreadsheet with uh, with my player pool that I'm going to draft from for next season. So I spend a lot of time on roster resource, um, and I, I look through just about every player profile, certainly everybody on the 40-man uh, of every team, but also every player that I think just could even potentially get a call up and uh, log some kind of meaningful playing time. And uh, that list usually comes out to, you know, 1,000 to, to, to 1,200 players. and um, you know, in the in the past, I've done my own projections. Um, I've done that for about four years. I'm not doing that this season. Um, I've just decided to to be humble and to 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 recognize that the the algorithmic projection systems are probably smarter than me and are uh, taking things into account uh, much better than I can. And and it, they they you know eliminate some of my own personal biases because. When you're doing things like that, a lot of your, a lot of the outputs are based on the inputs, and you know uh, some of the some of the stats that I would throw in, um, you know, maybe I don't weight them uh, as properly as a, you know, an, an unemotional computer might. Um, Do you have an example of, of any stats that you might have done that with? Yeah, I think you know on the on the pitching side of things. Um, you know, when you're trying to project ratios, you know, you look at your ERA and your whip. And I have always had a really hard time deciding how much to weight uh, the actual ratios versus, you know, I, I would I would factor in Sierra, XERA, and uh, um, to, a, to a smaller extent, uh, FIP and XFIP. And you just, when you're a person looking at it, it's just really hard to get the mixture right and to feel confident that you're, that you're doing it right. You know, I remember looking, uh, if we back this up a year, I remember looking at, uh, the projections for, uh, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was a projection for Jose Urquidy. And, um, I had a pretty good ratio, uh, 
projection down for him. Um, and then when all the algorithm systems came out, um, you know, they're uh, projecting him for, for much higher than what I was in terms of, in terms of the ratios. And I, and I remember kind of having a, a public fight about that on, on Twitter with some people. And, and let me guess, uh, Derek Hardy. You know, I don't fight with Derek Hardy. No, but, okay. um, <laughs> more, more of just a lively conversation. I don't really fight with anybody. Um, but, you know, in, in the end, the algorithmic systems are, are right about that kind of stuff more, more often than they're wrong. And I am uh, humble enough to recognize that they certainly beat me uh, on those things more often, more often than they don't. So I've decided to just give myself over to the algorithms. But um, the one thing I am doing is I'm still projecting playing time myself. Mm-hmm. So I, I put together, uh, I put together that player pool and I spent a long time going through each team and uh, looking at, looking at depth charts. And I, before any of the systems came out, I projected playing time for every single player. And uh, now that's now that steamers out, you use steamer six, 600 and uh, you, you just drop it in and, and convert it to your own playing time. And, and you're off to the races. You make it sound so easy. <laughs> uh, and we yeah, know that it's not. <laughs> you know, it's it's not that hard. It just takes a lot of time, and you have to be willing to put a lot of thought into it. And um, and I really enjoy doing it. I think that's a big that's a big part of it. It's not really a a laborious act for me. You know, I'm sitting there copying and pasting stats from one spreadsheet to another, and it, and I just you know I, I'm I don't know what I want to call myself a dork or whatever, but I I just. I just We're right that, there with you, bud. Don't worry. Uh, it's just it's it's really fun for me and and fulfilling. So so it works. And I'm yeah. hoping that you're keeping Mrs. Withers stocked in any type of food products and wine or beer that she wants as you sit on the other end of the couch sorting through your spreadsheets on Wednesday night. She's she's very supportive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's, well, I mean, she just you have to have a supportive me. spouse when you're dealing with this madness <laughs> for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um. Russell, you recently on your website, armchairroto.com. Again, uh, go check that out if you haven't already. Uh, but you put up an article there, uh, which was a, a postmortem of your post 480 P picks from last year. Um, so were there any themes that emerged from the players that you hit on? And if so, are there any players going late this season that you think fit into that archetype? Yeah. Um, that was a, I did that on Zach Waxman's, uh, podcast last year and, uh, four of us did a post 400 ADP draft. And when I went back and looked at it this year, um, I don't know if archetype is the right word, but there are several different categories that, that players fall into where they can, I mean, what you're really looking for after 400 ADP is someone who could out earn what you're, what you're paying there because, um, I use, I use projections a lot. So when you, when you're looking at the projections of players that are typically being drafted after 480p, a lot of them project negative in value. But what you're looking for is players who can bust out some way and, and, and beat what you're paying for. And there are a few different profiles of players that can do that. Uh, so, so you've got free agents who haven't signed yet. So someone like a Gary Sanchez. At this time last year, nobody was drafting him because he hadn't signed and people just, you know, when you have a veteran like that who hasn't signed, who, uh, you know, has maybe had a couple of rough years, 
players start to fantasy players start to worry that maybe that player isn't going to sign with a team and you're going to be stuck with a busted pick. But a lot of those guys do end up eventually signing, and and when they do, um, uh, their value automatically sees a jump, whether they whether they produce or not. And if they do what Gary Sanchez did, you know, you, you get a few hot months there, like you did with San Diego. Um, you know, that's a windfall profit. Some other some other profiles of players that can out earn their value, just veterans who maybe they've bounced around from team to team and have never gotten a, a full shot, like like a J.D. Martinez, uh, excuse me, a, a J.D. Davis, who, who finally lands in San Francisco, gets a full-time gig at third base. All of a sudden, he's, you know, got a shot at hitting 20 to 25 home runs with an everyday job. Um, you get players that get a change of scenery, like a – like a, like a Jamer Candelario, um, makes it over to Chicago, gets a full time gig. All of a sudden he's kind of back to what he had been doing a few seasons prior. Um, what else do we have? Um, you get rookies who had debuted the previous season and aren't being paid for like they're everyday players. So those are like your Spencer Steers and your James Outmans. Um, they'd, sh- they'd shown something in September, the previous season, but nobody had really. I say nobody, but not everyone had bought in that they were going to be everyday players. Um, somebody like a JP Crawford, who, you know, you, you draft that player because they have an everyday role and they're worth the draft cost just because they have that everyday role, but maybe they have an unexpected change in their skill set, um, gets a you know, comes across a little more power and all of a sudden at, at a prime age, they pop. I don't, I don't remember how many he had, but like 18 home runs instead of his typical eight to nine. Um, you know, s- someone like a, another profile is someone like a Michael Lorenzen, who people had always kind of liked, but had never been healthy. Finally, he gets healthy. You got all those innings, and all of a sudden, you got a big profit there. Uh, and then you get your true rookie, you know, your true rookie call ups and breakouts, like your, your Bobby Millers, who come up and and do what everyone hopes that rookies do when they draft them. So there's, so there's not really one archetype, but, but you have to be, be able to look at all the different players and, and see a pathway to them out earning their draft costs. And there's a bunch of, of paths. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to share a, a few names of, of players that you're looking at in that post 480p range? Yeah. I mean, if, if, um, if you look at the article that's, that's on my website, I have this, this, uh, this final table that I posted. Um, oh wait, I'm talking about the wrong article now. Um, <laughs> um, let's see. Let me pull up the ADP real quick. We already talked about Alex, Alex Fido. I think he's got a good path. Um, if you want to ask me a question while I vamp, let me pull up the ADP and, and take a look here. Let's see. I don't want to give you too much dead air. Um, I'm in a draft right now, and I'll, I don't know when you're posting this, but I'll talk about who I've got in my queue. Okay. Um, I'm at pick, uh, we're at pick 478, and um, I have five picks ago. I just took Keaton Wynn, uh, starting pitcher for the Giants, who came up in September last season. Um, you know, didn't do anything too special, but flash some skill. It looks like if, if things go right, he could stick at the rotation. Um, you know, all he would really need is 
75 to 100 innings to out-earn this draft costs. Where is he at right now? I just took him with pick 475, okay. 477. I think his ADP is around 500. Um, and uh, I'm six picks away from my next pick. And I've got Kyle Gibson queued up. Oh, um, just plain, you know, plain old boring <laughs> Kyle Gibson. Um, but, you know, at, at pick 484, 500, um, wherever he signs, you can expect him to throw 180 innings and you can, you know, you're not relying on him at this point to be an everyday uh, lineup guy, an every week lineup guy. You can mix and match where you're starting him, start him against the bad teams. Um, so, you know, those are a couple of players I like late. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Interesting. Yeah. That's late. late yeah, you can get some values there. I would say it depending on what you think of value is right. I mean, those are guys that are, can definitely contribute to your team. So um, Russell in your Poets are prize-winning article predicting 2024 MLB playing time for prospects. You wrote that the biggest predictor of a prospect spending significant time in the major leagues is prior big league experience. You narrowed this down further by filtering out some prospects who spent at least 25% of the year in the majors in 2023. There were some very sexy names on that list, by the way. Which of these players are you most interested in heading into 2024? Okay, yeah, I, I started talking about this a second ago because I, I I hardly ever post anything on my website anymore, but I, in rapid succession, posted these two articles, so I've, I get them kind of mixed up in my head. Um, if you if you pull up this article on my website, the, the final table that I included are top 100 prospects uh, at this time last year uh, who debuted last season but spent uh, 25% or less of their of their time in the bigs. And so it's about 15 players. And to be honest, I like all of these guys. Um, I'll just rattle them off. Curtis Mead, Gavin Stone, Duelvi Marte, Mason Wynn, Matt Mervis, Colton Kowser, Sedan Raphael, Michael Bush, Brian Rocchio, Evan Carter, Marco Luciano, Emerson Hancock, Junior Caminero, Jordan Lawler, Jason Dominguez, Pete Crow Armstrong, and, and Owen White. Um, with the exception of maybe Owen White, I don't really know, know his profile that well. And, uh, Marco Luciano, who I'm not entirely sold is, is ready. I mean, I think the majority of these names I just rattled off are, are primed to spend the majority of the season in 2024 in the bigs and, uh, to return a pretty good profit. Um, Noel V. Marte is being drafted kind of early. His ADP right now is, is about 150. Uh, that might be a, a little rich for me at the moment, but all these other guys have pretty appropriate prices on them, and there's a lot of room for, for profit, I think. Yeah, I'm just trying to pull up some of them here. I've got Curtis Mead going around pick 400. Um, you know, the Rays are going to raise, so you got to look at what the playing time is going to look like. But he was a, I mean, he's a really good prospect. And I, I feel yeah. like the Rays will find him enough at bats for him to pay off at that ADP. Um, let's see here. So, Rafaela, he flashed at the end of last season. Uh, Mike, anybody from that list that, um, uh, that Russell just gave us that is particularly interesting to you? Colson Montgomery. He wasn't on the list. I know. I was just. I was You're just, just so around. focused on. I mean, Mike. Just you know, 
I did see him like, turn around a 97 mile hour fastball. To right now, huh? No, <laughs> it's the only thing that the White Sox have going for them right now. No, um, yeah, there, there's some interesting guys in there. I, I, I was really interested in Mead uh, last year. Obviously, he didn't really do much when he came up, but I think he's going to play. I think I think he's going to have a spot. I mean, especially with not knowing what's going on with Wander and some of the other things that are going on injury wise with Below. Maybe they trade him. I, that could open up a spot for me, and I'm really intrigued by him. Yeah, and he could play multiple positions. Um, I, and last year he got hurt, from what I remember. That's that really kind of screwed up his year. He didn't debut till later, and obviously didn't look great at the end there. But um, yeah, he's definitely a guy that I'd be willing to take a shot on here. Um, Jason Dominguez. Oh man, that was don't yeah, mind. That's a I, I think he's going to be good, man. I really do. Um, I do too. We got to see. We got to see when he's going to be back. Um, Let's see, Marte. That's kind of you said one fifty, Russell, for Noel V. Marte. Yeah, you willing to pay yeah. that price? I uh, I actually uh, in my in my system here, um, it has him right about at that mark. Uh, but I've passed him over a couple of times already. I don't know that I'm going to pull the trigger there. Um, I pick one fifty. There are just so many guys who've been who are established regulars who've been doing mm-hmm. it a long time that just feel more reliable. Um, I tend to take, uh, like I said, I'm kind of a boring, boring drafter. I tend to take my upside picks a little bit later, mm-hmm. but I don't, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all. I, I mean, my expectation would be that he does return that value. Evan Carter, 140. Mikey in or out? <sighs> Playoff tax. Yeah. And yeah, he got a min of 63, I, so I, I feel like we're going to see that ADP, that 140 go up. Yeah, it's a 21-year-old guy. I mean, I, I'd, I'd like to see him do it with a little bit bigger sample size. I think Russell said it just really nicely there with the playoff tax. I mean, he's getting pushed way up, and there's just other guys that I would re- that have done it that I'd rather take, quote-unquote, less of a chance on at that point than Carter, although I, I think he's great, but I probably won't be getting him at that price. Guess why yeah, Langford's in, ADP? Oh, it's it's uh it's way too high. Um, yeah, one thirty five. I think that that James Anderson took him really really early in one of the early drafts, and I James think I heard Anderson. him say on. I think I've heard him say on a pod that that uh, he he regrets making that pick because he he could have gotten him so much later, and and uh, he's set the market a little bit earlier than than he otherwise would have liked what if he's setting us up man like what if he like that i don't know maybe he has some ulterior motive there like you know maybe <laughs> doesn't like uh white langford he's trying to get people hyped on him i don't know but uh all right so yeah i i think there's some really good names on that list go check out russell's article because i think you know if you're looking for some of these breakout players um, I mean, you kind of you nailed it down, Russell, like just looking at players that have played 25 percent of last season in the major leagues uh, who were former top 100 prospects. You've got a great list there. So um, definitely refer to that uh, as part of your offseason prep and nothing. You know, Mike, I, I wanted you to, to say that with a little more, you know, like Pulitzer Prize winning article. You know, you just kind of deadpan. that, and I'm a little, a little disappointed. Well, I, I thought I was being ironic, but I, oh, okay. I can I yeah. can understand I can understand how you feel. I mean, obviously that is the it's the highest 
surprised that you could win doing I, yeah. it's remarkable it's what a, what a what a great accomplishment man that's just amazing yeah yeah russell thank I you mean, so much appreciate once, it once you get the the jeff zimmerman retweet i mean i feel like the sky's the limit right i mean <laughs> hey i i started getting notifications and then realized that he had retweeted that thing and and nothing will get you more followers and uh people asking you questions like a jeff zimmerman retweet oh yes absolutely you I'm guys, still, you guys should be down in, you should be down in arizona at first pitch and listen to the man speak and hold court it's it's pretty remarkable oh was he there Oh yeah, he's a great dude. I was actually yeah. I was actually sitting outside drinking coffee and eating my breakfast and he approached me on Saturday morning. I was by myself and he came up and hey. said hello and yeah and and we had a really funny conversation. He was great. He's just an awesome guy. Super funny. Awesome. All right, Russell, we've got some kind of uh uh, quick hitter questions. Just, I guess learning a little bit more uh, about you and and your time sure. playing fantasy baseball. So, uh, first question I'm going to ask you is, what is your favorite memory of your time playing fantasy baseball? Man, you know, I thought about this a lot, um, knowing that you were going to ask it. I can't really come up with one specific thing. You know, my main event run this year uh, was one of the more memorable things I've ever experienced. Um, my team was in uh, last place in the league at the end of May. And over the course of two months, I rocketed all the way up to first. I climbed about 600 spots in the, 500 spots in the overall. And, uh, that three months that that happened was just one of the craziest, craziest fantasy baseball experiences I've ever had. Um, you know, the, the, I've got like weird things that I remember, like, like way back in the day playing on ESPN. Uh, back before it was free, uh, you had, you had to pay to play. And so mm-hmm. all the leagues were, all the leagues were standard and they had overall, uh, standings kind of like, uh, NFBC does now. And, uh, I had a team that was in first place in the, in the overall on an ESPN league at one point in time. I've got a screenshot of that. I still remember that. Um, you know, I think though the things that I really remember are the things that really sting. Um, like this Isn't season, that crazy how we remember. I know. The negatives. <laughs> like like this season on on the final on the final day of the season, I was winning uh, one of my OCs uh, by half a point, and then a day later when they did the scoring adjustments, I ended up losing the league. So I went to bed oh. Sunday night thinking I'd won, and it was a really good team. That was like a sixty something overall team. And uh, when they adjusted the scoring the next day, ended up getting second. And uh, man, that just that just really burns. And that's the kind of stuff I tend to remember more than mm-hmm. more than the wins. Um. So yeah, that's my answer on that. Interesting. Instead of, it's instead of best memories, it's biggest memories. Gotcha. <laughs> what's the What's the worst fab move you've ever made? I don't know, man. I, I kind of black all that stuff out. Uh, I try not to dwell. Um, but this season, I I fabbed Patrick Wisdom. Uh, it, on my main event, I fabbed Patrick Wisdom in the very first week and then dropped him in week two. And he hit 10 home runs that first month. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've thought about that all freaking season. Um, you know, that really, that really burned. Um, 
I don't think other than I can't remember like a worst fab move I've ever made. You know, one of the one of the biggest lessons I think I've learned the last few years is to just trust yourself and know that you're going to make bad decisions and you're going to you're going to make fab moves that are wrong just as just as often as you do that are right. And you just have to put those behind you and move forward. Um, so I really just I tend to not dwell on on that kind of stuff. Um, so nothing really stands out to me as my worst my worst fab move ever. I've definitely made them. What about you, Mike? You've talked a lot about how you've you've tried to improve in fab. Uh, so you got to have you got to have one for me here. Something that really sticks out as a terrible move that you made. It, there's just too many. There's just too many to mention. I mean, it's it's remarkable. I mean, I, I over the course of the last season, you know, several several things that I did that were just egregiously bad. You know, like. <laughs> Places where I was like, I, I thought I would stash a guy and and uh, and and go through that, but uh, I um, when I lost um, Liam Hendricks, I fabbed uh, Kendall Graveman, and then I was like, no, you know, I'm, I don't think he's, I think he's the closer, and then I was like, oh, I watched a game or two, and I was like, no, it's going to be Ronaldo Lopez, so that was a disaster, absolute unmitigated total disaster. Um, I make mistakes like that all the time. I, I, I quite, it's because I question myself too much. I got to stay committed to the process. And if I have a good process, I'll get better results. You know, like you said earlier, Russell, you know, your outputs are based on the inputs. Um, if I trust my inputs more, I'll probably get better outputs. And, uh, that's kind of where it lies for me. I think moving forward this year, you want to feel better about yourself. I'll tell you, I've had one colossally, if that's a word, colossally bad move, uh, per year. Three years, so I've done the main event for three years. My first year, I remember I dropped Tyler O'Neill. This was that that huge year that he had. Uh, Tyler O'Neill for DJ Stewart. Never forget that one. Um, DJ Stewart. I will say though, this year actually like carried me (laughs) at the end of the season. So he he was good in September for sure. Yeah, he was awesome. Um, So that was three years ago. Two years ago. I don't remember who I dropped him for, but I dropped Spencer Strider. I had picked him up before anybody did, like oh, after no. the first week. And then something happened. Like he pitched one game, but it wasn't great. I ended up dropping him. Uh, someone else picked him up and the rest is history. Spencer oh, Strider's yeah. year, uh, in, in 2022. And then this past year, I dropped Justin Steele. Um, after remember he had that forearm injury. And, you know, it looked bad at first and we didn't know he was mm-hmm. coming back. And I was just like, yeah, I don't think I think this guy's been kind of, you know, fortunate so far. I ended up dropping him for Cutter Crawford, which Cutter oh. Crawford was OK. I mean, he I kept him on my team for probably most of the year. But obviously, in hindsight, I would have uh, would have been nice to have Justin Steele and uh, his Cy Young caliber year for uh, for most of the season. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm due for one every year. Uh, I'm trying to not do that. But I, you know. I I find it hard to thread the needle between being aggressive uh while also, you know, mm-hmm. not making really bad draw. Like I don't know. I feel like my style of playing is generally aggressive and I feel like it's it's worked for me. So I'm like, do I really want to I don't know. I like I don't want to totally change that, but um definitely there's got to be a little movement towards, you know, being more I guess it's not thoughtful cuz I do put a lot of thought into this, but just a little more conservative when it comes to some of these drops. Um, so, you know, just like you, Mike, still a work in progress over here. But um, 
Russell, getting back to you, who is your favorite follow in the fantasy community? Oh, man, this one's easy. It's it's my man, Mike Govier. Mike Govier. Uh, that's yeah, funny. you know, I've uh, he and I have a lot in common in terms of fantasy baseball and movies uh, being two of our favorite things. So I've gotten to know him a lot uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, he he's my favorite follow in the fantasy community for sure. Yeah, he he's he just brings so much, you know, enthusiasm, and you know, he brings something to this community that mm-hmm. you know, aside from him, we don't really have, right? Like, just someone who just, uh, you know, can make us laugh. And I, I heard, did you go to his uh, presentation or his podcast at first pitch, Mike? I heard that was great. Yeah, I was there. That was where I was double fisting the beers in the back. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Curl and shared on Twitter. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I was Great. very happy to. How many beers did you have while you were there? Can you count the it? whole week? The whole weekend? Or? The whole week? Yeah. I mean, oh, uh, you know, probably. I didn't drink anything on Sunday based on what I did Saturday. Uh, I would say somewhere probably around thirty. Really? Wow. Maybe I mean, twenty-five, thirty. I don't know. I don't count counting <laughs> beers. Counting beers is for losers. I just don't. Were you, I had no uh, idea. Mike, were you at the recording of Sleeper in the Bust? Yeah, I went to all of those. Man, I listened to that this morning. Was uh, was Eno as lit as he sounded on the on the recording? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> the man likes his beer. We know that. Oh my beer. god, he's he's a riot. I mean, and and honestly, just a super nice guy in person too. I mean, just very down to earth, very regular guy. Likes his IPAs though. Sure. Yeah, man. <laughs> so you drank thirty beers. You would drink me under the table, you know, Russell. We were I, I'm just estimating. I'm just estimating. I but mean, it, like I, I couldn't. I probably like if I had ten the entire time, that would be a lot. You yeah, know, like, I, I, I just, you know, when I'm away from home and I got nobody to report to, it's like uh, yeah, I tend to go on my, crazy. I tend to go on a little freeform jazz odyssey, you know, like just kind of, sure. you know, that kind of thing. So, okay, Russell, one more quick hitting question for you. Would you rather watch Dusty Baker fill out a lineup card in person or watch Aaron Nola take the mound with a lead of more than four runs with money on the line? Oh, I'm man. not going to tell you who wrote that question. I'm, bet- is, I'm betting you can guess. <laughs> this is a, this is an easy one. You know, I've been uh, – while I've been sitting on the couch late at night working on my spreadsheets, I've actually been re-watching the entire series of Seinfeld. Nice. And uh, I came across this episode the other night. When uh, when George Steinbrenner thinks that George the George has died because he's been working too hard, <laughs> and so so Steinbrenner goes and sees George's parents, and he sits down with them to tell them that their son is dead. You know, George is working so hard. You know, and so the mom's like, "Oh my God, George!" And Frank Costanza sits there. He looks at Steinbrenner and he goes, "What the heck did you trade Jay for? <laughs> So that's a long-winded way of saying I'd rather have the conversation with Dusty so I could confront him face to face about some of those lineup decisions. I kind of yeah. feel bad. I kind of feel bad now that he's saying he retired because of all the uh the vitriol on online and all the all the normal Joes like me second guessing his decisions. But I think I would like that opportunity to look at him and say, Hey, what the hell was that with all the lineups all season? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I'm I'm with you, man. That is like some of those decisions, it, Kyle Tucker, like I'm, yeah, I, I guess I feel bad. Like some of the vitriol that went towards dusty, but you know, I feel 
equally as good for Kyle Tucker. The man is free. The man can finally be who we think he is, right? Like he's a top of the order hitter. Like there is no world in which Kyle Tucker should be batting in the six or seven spot. Ridiculous. Yeah. You know, yeah. jerking around. Even uh, even slumping in the playoffs. Like, you know, yeah, he's crazy. your second best hitter, best hitter, second best hitter. You just stick him in the lineup, fourth or fifth, third, fourth, fifth. Let him play. And let him go, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and listen, Chaz McCormick, too, another guy that I think has to get a little bit of a boost this season without Dusty there. You know, yeah, I think uh, if he's sure. playing full time, he's going to be, you know, you got a player who can give you a 2020 at a, a pretty reasonable price. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Aaron Ola, just quickly, man, you ever doing it again? <sighs> you know, the draft cost so far this season is pretty appealing. So you're we'll sick. see. You're a sick man. All right. I know. <laughs> so we'll see. I'll, I'll never. I'll never say never. All right. That is spoken like a true fantasy baseball player. Remove <laughs> the emotions, right? You just got to yeah, know what that's is right. the price and make your decision. It'll be okay. amazing if he signs somewhere with a great park, and uh, yeah. he just makes it. You know, like San Diego, San Francisco. I think it's real. Then you're kind of like, oh yeah, I'm definitely back in. Yeah. Oh god. All right. Well. I won't be joining you there. Uh, but you can always reach out to me because I, I have it. I have had the Nolan Aaron Nola experience. Um, all right, our last segment. We always do this. Russell is. Uh, we do a quick segment at the end called our Mental Health Minute, uh, which is where we each uh, identify one thing that we're currently doing to maintain our mental and or physical health. So, uh, what is that for you? Well, aside from fantasy baseball, you know. Uh, I've been exercising a lot lately. Um, I get to I get to my office. I drop my kids off at school. I go to work, and we have a gym in my office building. And I'm fortunate enough to be able to kind of blow off the first hour of uh, of work, you know, three or four times, three or four times a week. So I go down to the gym in our office, blow off some steam, and then head upstairs and get to work. Awesome. It uh, keeps me, you know, it keeps me happy, keeps me fresh. Makes me feel like I'm taking care of myself. You know, I'm I'm not the best eater in the world, so <laughs> so work so working out helps helps kind of keep the balance there. Helps me feel like I'm taking care of myself somewhat. Are you looking at spreadsheets on the treadmill while you're doing this? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's I've tried to do that thing um, called like uh, something bundling. Like I, I know it's like a popular term now, but basically the idea is to try to kind of pair something that you don't really enjoy with something you enjoy. So that's something I've been trying to do is like, uh, not look at spreadsheets, but like, listen, like I, I'll try to save a fantasy baseball podcast that I'd like to listen to until I go to the gym. Right. And, and like, I won't allow myself to listen until I do that. So I don't know. Does it work all the time? No, but it's a nice idea. Uh, but that's awesome. And that you are, it sounds like you're pretty consistent with that. Obviously one of the best things that you can do, for both your physical and mental health. Um, Mike, what about you? What have you been doing to take care of yourself? Well, Chris, I shared this with you about a week ago, but my, uh, my stepdad is currently in hospice and, um, is nearing the finish line here of life. And, uh, he's been an incredible person in my life for more than 30 years and, uh, somebody that I've really admired and, and been close to. And, um, last week I was faced with a decision about, knowing that he was going into hospice and going to first pitch anyway. And 
um, I talked over with my wife and I thought real significantly uh, long about not going and uh, and just being home to help with whatever needed to be done. And I talked about it with my mom and my mom is, you know, about to lose her husband. And um, it's a difficult process as anyone who's gone through it knows, but I think we're all kind of at peace with it as much as you can be with, you know, losing a family member. And she said to me, you know, this is something you've been waiting to do for a long time. I got to present, you know, on a, a small part of the, the, the dais there. And it's something that I've always wanted to do. And, and she knew that and, she doesn't really know what it means. She's like, you go and talk with your fantasy baseball people. I don't know what any of that stuff is all about or whatever. But she kind of gave me the permission to go. In doing that then and getting on the plane on Thursday and having conversation with my brother and sister who then were here holding on the fort while I was out having a good time or trying to have a good time down there. I mentally went through this process when I was on the plane of thinking about, you know, that idea of kind of being in the moment and understanding where you're at in, in the process. There was really nothing I was going to be able to do here at home to facilitate what was going on with my stepdad. And I very rarely do anything for myself. I, I am, I'm a, I'm a, you know, person who gives a lot. So I've been told and, and I feel that way a lot of times. And so I thought it was really important that I do that for me. Some people might think that's selfish. Um, it was something I've been waiting to present at first pitch since I once started going, you know, and to be asked to do that was a, a huge moment for me to be able to be rubbing elbows with people that I consider to be mentors and heroes was really a big deal to me. I gave myself the freedom to go and do that despite the obstacles and the shitstorm that's here. And I think you have to really think hard about those types of things, but giving yourself the freedom to do the things that you love doing in spite of the obstacles and the things that are around you is something that I've really been working on the last couple of weeks as we kind of navigate these final days together with my stepdad you know i don't mean to be heavy but i just i thought that that's a really important thing to share you know like giving yourself some freedom to do things that you enjoy even in the midst of chaos even in the midst of it being inconvenient um sometimes you got to do what's best for you if i hadn't gone i think i would have been really really upset and so i'm glad that i did um and uh i've been able to be around and try to help my mom provide some comfort to my mom uh, this week. So I feel better about that, but uh, you know, that's, that was for me. So we're working through it. Yeah. Well, appreciate you sharing that man. And um, yeah, I, I, you just knowing you, you absolutely are someone who just gives and gives and gives uh, in so many ways. And uh, you know, I, I, I think at, the expense of of yourself and your own well-being sometimes so sure. i i'm i'm glad that you made that decision i think that was the right decision um you know and and my heart goes out to you your family and as always you know here if you need anything so thanks you man i know please. i know that you are i appreciate that and you were one of the first to reach out when i was telling people about that so i really appreciate you sharing mm-hmm. that too yeah um so for me uh one thing i've just been trying to do i i kind of like caught myself today actually is um just trying to pay attention to what's going on internally uh whether that's my thought process uh or just my emotional state just and we've talked about this in in some variation before but just the idea of of really stopping and and being cognizant of where my uh my mindset is at and 
and what I'm feeling. Like I, I noticed today I started, I'll just give you an example. Like, I don't know. I, I just like my guard was down a little bit. I didn't sleep well last night. And I noticed today I started to get into kind of like this negative headspace where I was like, you know, uh, com- thinking of like, like comparing, comparing myself to other people basically and starting to be like, you know, I, I mean, I know everybody knows it's like the biggest waste of time, right? Like there's always something, always somebody you could compare yourself to that is doing quote unquote better. Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and the flip side of that is you always could think of somebody who's doing quote unquote worse than you. So it, it's just such a, a, a waste of time to even engage in that. But I just noticed like I, I started to go down that rabbit hole today and, you know, I'm glad I was able to like just pause and be like, wait a second, what the hell am I doing? You know, and like just being able to stop it where it was and not let it get worse, because in the past, there's been times where I've let that snowball mm-hmm. and have gotten to some really negative emotional states because of that. Sure. So, you know, and I work with that a lot with uh, work on that with my clients a lot, um, you know, and I'm still a work in progress with that as well. It's just like being mindful and paying attention to what is going on because uh, we really need to, uh, to do that in order to maintain our, our wellness. So, uh, that's what I've been doing. It it definitely worked today, and like I said, it's a work in progress. But I encourage everybody out there, like just just notice, just like pay attention to to what's mm-hmm. going on before things build up to a place where you know it becomes unmanageable. Great strategy, um, Chris. Great strategy. Yeah. So that's it, man. This was a longer one. I think we went about an hour and a half. So, but it didn't feel like that. Uh, but uh, you know, we got some really good information out there. Uh, we appreciate anybody who took the time to listen. Russell, we appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time. If you want to just tell people, uh, if you want, where they can find you on social media and where they can find any work that you're putting out there. Sure. I really appreciate you having me on. It was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you can find me on Twitter X um, at Armchair Roto, and the website is armchairroto.com. All right. Awesome, man. So we will see you again. We're going to be recording uh, again in two weeks. So. Stay tuned for that. Um, But for my co-host, Mike Carter, I am Chris Torres. Thank you so much for listening to Fantasy Baseball Beat.